Welcome to Conversations in Bioethics, a podcast series in which we discuss contemporary bioethics issues with Cleveland State faculty and other professionals. Hi, I'm Dr. Tony Nicoletti from the Department of Philosophy, and I'm here today speaking with Dr. Paul Ford from the Cleveland Clinic about clinical ethics consultations and the role of the Bioethics Center at the Cleveland Clinic in the hospital system. Dr. Ford is the F.J. O'Neill Chair of Bioethics at the Cleveland Clinic. He joined the professional staff at the Cleveland Clinic in 2001, beginning as a clinical bioethicist. He is also director of the Bioethics Center and the Neuroethics Program, which constitutes a partnership between the Bioethics Department and the Neurological Institute. He's also an associate professor of medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine. Dr. Ford's areas of specialization include neuroethics, clinical ethics consultation, and end-of-life issues. Among his many roles at the Cleveland Clinic, he does clinical ethics consultation, resident education, and research. He has done over 1,500 ethics consultations during his time at the Cleveland Clinic and lectures frequently outside of the clinic on a range of ethical issues. His numerous publications include many book chapters, several books such as Complex Ethical Consultations, Cases That Haunt Us, edited with D.M. Dodzinski from Cambridge University Press, and journal articles in many academic journals such as Cambridge Quarterly of Healthcare Ethics, Ethics and Medicine, American Journal of Bioethics, Journal of Medicine, and Social Theory and Practice. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ford. Thank you, Tony. Glad to be here. So let's actually begin by talking a little bit about how the Center of Bioethics functions in the hospital system at the Cleveland Clinic. What are your roles there and, and, and how does it work within the system? Great. As you know, the Cleveland Clinic enterprise uh, composes a number of hospitals. We have the main academic center uh, as well as uh, nine hospitals regionally within Northeast Ohio as well as a presence in Florida, Abu Dhabi, uh, Las Vegas, as well as uh, London coming up in two years. So the center is really responsible for a variety of tasks uh, within the entire enterprise. Um, much of our most important work, perhaps, is the bedside ethics consultation we do. And everything stems out of the kinds of impacts we have on patients, uh, healthcare providers, um, family members, and others in the hospital environment. So really the uh, the moments that are most critical in one's life where there are dilemmas of related choices, um, we have an opportunity to, to help people. And out of that comes an opportunity to educate, opportunity to develop policy, um, and an opportunity to uh, share some of these experiences. So let's focus on the clinical consultations. How would you say that what you offer in the Bioethics Center or in, or in a clinical consultation, how does that differ from what others in the hospital can provide? For example, aside from a physician or a health professional, uh, you know, a chaplain, psychiatric consultation, social workers, what is your unique Great. contribution? We have both unique contributions and overlapping ones. And on this, this list, uh, palliative medicine also is a, a close collaborator. So you've listed many of our, our closest uh, allies in helping patients and healthcare providers. I'm fortunate at the Cleveland Clinic to be in a large group practice that's the entire Cleveland Clinic, and we are considered all one team. So we focus on how we can help one another and call on each other. So some of the things we do similarly would be to support patients and be empathetic and compassionate and to um, provide support where needed. Um, but each of these have very different roles. Um, we are often most helpful when there are one or more choices to be made in a, a situation and it's unclear uh, what choice is ethically most appropriate or defensible, or even sometimes whether some of the choices are ethically not defensible, are ethically inappropriate, because there are those. Um, so we will take a look at the, uh, the various values, and you'll hear me use values very often, the things that are important to the patient, things that are important to family members, to nurses, doctors, uh, healthcare technicians. Um, look at what's important and what could be lost 
or what could be preserved by making a, a specific choice in a tough case. So let's take actually one example here uh, as a co- slight contrast. So let's take a social worker. Yep. At the time at which somebody's going to be, is ready to be released from the hospital, let's say, sure. they're going to make an assessment of what kind of help they have at home, how, what, how ambulatory they are, and what kind of support they have at home, things like that. And what, what would, so you could also get involved at the moment of discharge in relation to that. So what would your, how would you be stepping in and what, you know, how would you be connected to that, but what different aspect would you have or what different perspective would you be looking at the issues of discharge and how that person's going to be able to function when they leave? I greatly appreciate your question. Uh, partly because it highlights the different kinds of things we do in different cases as ethicists. It's not just all end of life. Often people think of ethics consultation as end of life. Um, There are thousands and thousands of discharges from the hospital system that happen, and we don't hear about them. But you're right. When there are particularly tricky discharge issues, we'll get called. And what is our role? Well, it's not to find the uh, safe place. But perhaps one theme that often comes up is something like, what is a safe enough discharge? Right. And healthcare providers sometimes can forget that no discharge is 100% safe. And so we, there's no such thing as safe as in no chance of risk. And then the ones we get called on are, how much is safe enough? When a patient's insisting on going home, but you know they're at a risk of falling and hurting themselves, when do we respect their decision-making? When do we... Uh, insist on them putting into place a good plan before we'll discharge them? And when do we say they can't protect their own interests and we need to discharge them elsewhere? Or perhaps we need to involve um, adult protective services, uh, particularly if it's an elder, uh, because they can't protect themselves. So where are obligations where calling social services is... Uh, too early and would break the trust? And when is it necessary and needed, either from the law or from an ethics viewpoint? Um, We also collaborate with law office. So beyond that, so social work would call us. They would uh, set up the options, and we'd very likely consult with them to see what the situation was, often would meet with the patient and or family, uh, try to get a sense of why they would make a decision and that there's no gaps in communication. And once you iron out the gaps in communication, then you can usually get at what are the values of this patient in the team and what are they really willing to sacrifice? Because we go through our daily life with all kinds of inconsistencies in our own lives. And we don't think about, I'm sacrificing the $2 for a cup of coffee that I won't have next week for the donut I'd rather have. We make these decisions often unreflectively and they don't make a big difference in our lives. But when we are put in a different framework, would you rather have the donut or the coffee? Sometimes people will say, oh, I didn't think about the donut, I'm going to have the donut, right? Now that analogy sounds uh, frivolous, uh, and nothing's frivolous about these these choices. But for perhaps, how much do I value my ability to live in my own house and have my own pets and my own neighbors? Am I willing to risk that, even if it means I might break my hip by falling and need to call the the ambulance. And if I choose to be in my hospital environment, how can we provide the right environment that discharges our duties, our obligations, to give them the resources that they need? So it sounds like when somebody, or the way I'm thinking about this is, the kinds of risks that we take and the kinds of sacrifices and choices that we make that making this choice today requires a sacrifice, which we can be more and less reflective about at different moments, depending on how consequential it is. But when you're, of course, in this vulnerable position as a patient, and then it could be that people are questioning everything, that we can't let this person go home and do that, but we we might take a risk of having a dog when our child has allergies, or but then all of a sudden you're questioning everything about them. And so it sounds like in that case, you're coming in to provide that framework that would help them determine, as you said, how big of a sacrifice is too big when 
we all make these kinds of choices and we we have to respect this person as somebody who has a life not just a health concern or something to that effect does that sound absolutely when a person comes into the hospital is very sick they it creates a kind of vulnerability and power dynamics as well as situationally because they are under a lot of stress so often we're asking people to make decisions when they are in the worst state of mind and so part of our role is to make sure both the healthcare team and the patient and their loved ones have considered all options so they can make as clear a choice and perhaps it's often to avoid regret later. Right. I chose to go home, I fell, I wish I hadn't fallen, but I don't regret the choice because I knew what was I, I was getting into. And uh, creating that clarity in this complex case can be very challenging. Those are the skills we, we work on. There are lots and lots of cases that are run-of-the-mill that we don't get involved in. But when there's this uh, unusually complex set of circumstances, that's when we get called. So that actually leads to my next question. Uh, and the question is, how does an ethics consult arrive? Because arise? Because one can certainly imagine that a lot of people don't even realize patients and families that this is the kind of thing that they could request when they're in the hospital. So can you kind of walk us through how your department might receive a request for a consult? Who would request it? Kind of walk us a little bit through the steps of how that process works. Sure. We have been working um, again to try to let people know who come into the hospital that our services are available often until you need us you don't pay attention to that we're available. So families and patients call very seldom. More often, it will be a bedside nurse that will mention to a family, hey, we have this great service, or a doctor who will mention to the family, this is a tough decision beyond usual. We can have an ethicist come and talk with you. So the most frequent consultors on paper are nurses, doctors, uh, both trainee doctors as well as staff attending doctors. And sometimes it's on behalf of the patient. Other times it's for their own moral consternation. The moral distress people feel at bedside, uh, often nurses and doctors, um, can be very acute when they worry that a decision isn't being made in the best way. So uh, part of the way we get physicians and nurses to know about our services, we go regularly on a weekly rounds in many of the intensive care units where some of the toughest decisions are made. We do continuing medical education sessions. We do uh, residency teaching, all to let them know that what our services could provide. And then it becomes word of mouth. One care provider, one healthcare provider talks to another one and they say, hey, if you need some help in these trickiest of communication, trickiest of decisions, call ethics. So in all of our Northeast Ohio hospitals, we have 24-7 coverage where somebody can uh, put in an order or page an ethicist to help them with a case. Uh, so we have full access to the medical record, and we do so judiciously and only look in people's charts to the degree we need to help them. Uh, we will provide advice and we will put notes in the chart. So we actually get, just like doctors and nurses, get to put notes in the chart, which is a big responsibility because others will read them. Patients and families will read them. And we want to provide useful, helpful advice. Uh, nationally, uh, most hospitals have ethics committees and they usually respond between 24 to 48 hours from a time a consult is called. That's what they guarantee. We say somebody will return a page normally within 20 minutes. And now you may not be able to get advice right in 20 minutes because it will take some time, but our system is one that we believe in real-time help. I think you had mentioned in conversation that one of the changes you've seen also is virtual consults. Is that something that is going hospital-hospital, or is that something you do with outpatients? How far is the... Uh, ethics consult stretch being there's so much outpatient. It sounds like it's still largely an in-hospital consult. Absolutely. The tradition has been uh, in-hospital, uh, often intensive care, discharge kinds of questions. So we're trying to push the uh, opportunity to help patients to more of an outpatient setting, whether it be internal medicine physicians who 
want to talk about end-of-life planning or palliative medicine in the same way or uh, cancer doctors and nurses who want to talk with their patients about uh, the next potential chemotherapy. Um, so we have implemented, along with the Cleveland Clinic broader strategy, of offering virtual consults on a iPhone or a laptop or where you can video conference in with an ethicist. Um, and for our patients, it's of no charge to them uh, to provide a conversation and advice about some uh, activity. Our biggest volume so far in those virtual consults are people who are thinking about elective surgeries, particularly elective brain surgeries, or those who are thinking about donating part of their liver or a kidney for uh, for someone. So a potential living donor potential might request donor. a separate ethics consult from the workup they go through. They, they could, and the team often will request us to, to provide support to the, the patient and help them make sure that they have great informed consent, that they really have thought through the process. You know, the role of an ethics consultant really is varied. Um, some people confuse us as patient advocates, and I always think of us as no more or less a patient advocate than their doctors and nurses. Right? Everyone on the healthcare team is advocating for what they want to see for the patient. Uh, my bigger role is to advocate for good process, for fair communication, um, for us to uh, hold true to the values of caring for our patients and uh, doing the right thing or uh, at least avoiding the things that are ethically indispensable. Because sometimes if we don't reflect carefully, we, we can fall into that trap. It's interesting. I might think that people, I wonder if families conflate the ethicist with a chaplain or that type of ministerial sure. advice. Sure, sometimes they, uh, they conflate us. One of our big roles each time I meet with a patient or family is to say, by the way, this is what ethics services can provide. Um, now, at the Cleveland Clinic, particularly at the downtown campus, we're expected to wear white coats. And so part of that explanation is, I'm not a medical doctor. I don't, you know, I don't have this background. Uh, but I, then again, I also say, I'm not the patient advocate. I'm trying to make sure you get good communication, you're heard, your values are respected, and that, uh, and to support everyone. Uh, we actually haven't also said what maybe the backgrounds of the different ethicists is. So, for example, your background is in philosophy. You were, you were trained in philosophy. Yes. And then you also have physicians and nurses who ultimately join the bioethics staff. So given that that wide range of backgrounds of people, how are you all trained similarly to, let's say a physician calls for a consult because there's a disagreement between the family and the physician or the care team about how to handle an end-of-life issue. So is there uniformity or how much uniformity is there in whoever they happen happens to be on call or happens to come to do the consult? Uh, you know, is there uniformity and where is there variation? How does, all, how does that work? Yeah. So there is a specific skill set needed in order to do these ethics consultations. All of us have training in this. Um, it's not only moral intuition. In fact, it's not moral intuition at all. There are a skill set that when applied, we will largely come to the same conclusion, very similar to our colleagues in neurology. When they use their neurology skills, their clinical skills, in almost all cases, they will come to largely a similar uh, diagnosis. Now, they may choose uh, to try drug A rather than drug B for epilepsy first. They might have some preference, but largely they both agree that it needs an epilepsy medicine. So similarly in ethics, uh, most of us in, uh, in the center are fellowship trained. So we have our disciplines of law, medicine, nursing, philosophy, but then we went ahead and got additional training to develop a skill set. And then we were mentored and uh, apprenticed with other people to uh, learn the, the trade of in communication and to fill in those things our disciplines hadn't taught us. So uh, there are those cases that catch our attention where uh, reasonable people disagree what is the best choice, but even in those, 
the ethicists are generally in agreement what the absolutely wrong choices are. So it, we are almost always in agreement of how to narrow it to which choices could be defensible. And then, uh, then it becomes a fine balancing of which values you're going to give up, right? The ethical dilemma is always going to be a situation where there's something that you have to give up of value, whether it be you're going to give up longer life for a higher quality of life or higher quality for a shorter life, uh, whether it is truth-telling. I'm going to lie to this patient who uh, has dementia for the greater good, but that may mean they won't trust us and the, the team and I don't believe lying is a good thing. Right? Each of these things value something differently. Um, if you get to a situation where you think you've had a dilemma and it dissolves and there's a win-win, either it wasn't a dilemma to start with or you haven't identified what, what's been lost or who's lost out. For instance, if you have a heart transplant patient where you're tempted to give them a little bit of medicine to move them up the list that they really don't need, that may seem it's a win for your institution, it's a win for your team, it's a win for this patient. But there is a clear case where if you think about those wins, you don't pay attention to the person across the, the city who's not going to get that uh, organ. You don't um, think about the loss to the integrity of the system, which is a loss. Right? So moral dilemma, only real if after good communication you realize there still is some choice that needs something that's going to be lost. Uh, the other aspect of this is sometimes people say, well, it will resolve itself. If we just wait long enough, the patient will die or get better, it will declare itself. That's a value choice in itself, right? You now are going to put a burden on somebody while you avoid making a decision. So avoiding making a decision is a decision, and it's a value-laden decision. First of all, I'm glad you used that term, moral intuition, because that's exactly what I was trying to get at without using the term right. So you're not going in there, just everybody has their moral, quote-unquote, common sense, and, and, and you're there to do that. But in a moral dilemma, maybe you have a situation where a patient, it's becoming more and more clear that they want to stop treatment that is not unreasonable to continue. And the care team would like to continue the treatment and the patient and let, maybe the family would also like to continue the treatment, but the patient themselves, it's not fully clear, but it's becoming more clear maybe that they don't. And so in that, you might end up, would you say, with an, a dilemma because the physician has to sacrifice or at least follow their duty to adhere to the autonomous wishes of the patient, and yet in doing that, they're also giving up the potential to heal the person or something like that. Sure, you've, you've highlighted a, a, a general type of case that we often see. I think a couple of things that are very important about the way that you lay this out, it is incredibly complicated, right? This is a complex system because you not only have a variable of time, but you have a variable of fluctuation in, in somebody's condition. Uh, people often don't just steadily go down or steadily go up in terms of getting better or worse. Often there are spikes where they suddenly are better and suddenly worse, suddenly better. It's sometimes hard to see the trend. Um, the patient only can experience what they're experiencing now and know what they've experienced previously. They can't see what they're going to experience in the next while. We can all predict. The clinicians often will have seen the experiences of numerous patients and so know generally what the trend for patients in general, but it's still not that patient's experience. So these are incredibly complicated, dynamic systems that are always in flux. And yet, you have to make a decision. So you nicely said, it's becoming clearer what the patient would want, because we're not going to get to 100% clear. And maybe there is greater discomfort by the bedside nurse in continuing these therapies when the patient is saying, no, I don't want this. Right? But often we don't even have the patient to tell us. So sometimes if the patient has informed us they want to have a big surgery, and ahead of time we don't know whether it's going to be the majority of surgeries that go perfectly well or it's going to be the rarer one where that uh, goes poorly. 
So there was a case that um, that I wrote up with uh, Dr. DeMarco that uh, about a patient that was really very soon after their cardiac surgery, only three days. Now, cardiac surgery often will take a week or three weeks or four weeks to get out of the, uh, the hospital and then rehab. So people are prepared to spend some time. But after only three days, the family was, had come to the surgeon and the intensive care physician said, this is enough. This has been a rocky course. It hasn't gone as we expected. He would never want to long-term be on a breathing machine. So he was on a ventilator. And we need to withdraw the therapy now. And you notice I didn't say withdraw care. This is one of my the things that's important about language and ethics. We don't withdraw care from people because we care for them. The idea is, do we withdraw unwanted, unneeded, unnecessary uh, therapies? So, we were called uh, three days after the surgery. Patient was uh, on a ventilator, uh, not able to communicate. They tried to wean him to see if maybe they could get him off the ventilator and then it wouldn't be an issue. And he wouldn't wean. He didn't wean. He probably wanted to, but just his body wouldn't. The, uh, the surgeon wanted to advocate that the surgery had been successful. The cardiac surgery, the, the actual thing they intended to fix, was fixed. Uh, but all the other complications were now in play. So he did his job. And he felt his job was to advocate for the survival and health of this patient. At the same time, he was conflicted because he wanted to listen to the family, the surrogates, and there was genuine lack of clarity of what this patient would really want in this moment. The the surgeon was advocating that the patient would want to continue and he knew the riskiness. The patient's family, several members of the patient's family, uh, said no, he was willing to undergo the risks and give it a try, but this is more than what he wanted, and he would never want this longer term. From the physician's perspective, was this going to end up being long-term, and was it clearly defined what long-term meant? Because long-term to one person could be, I end up in the hospital for a month, but if I can leave in a month and I'm whole and functional, that's okay. Whereas to another person, long-term means, I don't want to live like that. And this is exactly the kind of question that we, we ask in these cases. Because one person will say short-term, and what they're thinking is a week mm-hmm. or tomorrow. And another person, oftentimes clinicians, will say, oh, well, they'll just need to be on a ventilator for a little while, say six, eight months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. Which with people's eyes get open when, when you prompt them to say, well, what's a short and long-term? Um, they established that the real short term of now, hours, days, that he wasn't going to be extubated, that okay. he wasn't going to be taken off, be able to be taken off the ventilator safely, uh, that it would be in the more months, weeks to months, that, uh, that he would have this intervention. Hard to know still because there's such variability. Just had a surgery three days ago. What do you do? Um, so we didn't demand immediately that the... Uh, the family surrogate's uh, wishes were respected uh, because these are choices that we can't go back on. We knew that if the team removed the ventilator, this patient would die. If we left it on, this patient would survive the next day and probably the day after, the day after. Uh, As you recall, was there any uh, conflict within the team themselves about whether to stop now or keep going? There was, and, and this is the, uh, the challenge sometimes, is that sometimes ethics consultants are there to help between team members who think they, uh, we should do different things, and they're morally distressed about either of the paths. Uh, sometimes we are there to help between family members, surrogate decision makers, where the surrogate decision makers within their own families can't, can't decide which is the right values to preserve. Uh, sometimes it's conflict between the team and the family, and sometimes it's all three, right? And that, that uh, that's you have to work that through stepwise. So in this case, you would say the largest conflict was between the physician and the family. I, I would say correct? between the primary surgeon and the uh, the family, with with 
other healthcare providers having varying degrees of difficulty with either uh, even trying to, to wean the patient or uh, not listening to the family. Um, so there was a, a gradation. But probably the starkest one that we highlight in the, uh, in the book is this conflict between surgeon and, and family. And really, the surgeon, it turned out, was conflicted because his obligations seemed contrary to him. He wanted to uh, advocate for the patient. He also wanted to uh, respect the patient's wishes. So after a lot of deliberation, um, but by a lot, this was still in uh, a matter of uh, days and hours, uh, we decided that there was sufficient um, uh, justification from family as that we would uh, advocate for the withdrawal of the ventilator. We wouldn't do anything further to foreshorten his life. So if he breathed off the ventilator, we would support him. But, uh, but that the ventilator was a technology that because of his right to bodily integrity to control his own body and the surrogate then assumes that role, that it would be um, most appropriate and justified to respect that wish. So can I read a couple of things Please. from the case? And we should mention that this is from the book, The Cases That Haunt Us. Um, so the one thing I wanted to read here is, uh, this is referring to Dr. DeMarco. It said, Joe observed the interchange between Paul and Dr. Dallas. Amazing. Dr. Dallas went from the person who knew the right thing to do to a medical professional facing a genuine moral dilemma a problem that obviously confounded him. It's easy to know the right thing to do when everything goes as planned and there is no conflict or opposition. However, the case was not so easy. So I thought about that passage which I had highlighted when you said that Dr. Dallas had a change during the case itself. And then the other uh, part, I don't have to quote it, but I wanted to mention was there was a question about, or at least got highlighted that the wife in this case was also concerned about very practical matters such as uh, checking out of her hotel and would she need to stay an extra day or were they going to go along with her wishes. And so what, what role did that play in, you know, did that not cause you to think that more needed to be done to make sure this is what he really wanted or, you know, how does all that factor in together? So um, this type of comment from healthcare providing teams about daily uh, activities and things of daily life that people take care of um, are a mixed bag. So sometimes they highlight how a surrogate's choices may be influenced by things that are not the patient's wishes. So the surrogate is interested because of greed or because of uh, self-interest. But there's oftentimes, and I think it's for me more often, these kind of things about hotel or getting back to work or not being able to come during the workday are rooted in the necessities of life. And we need to remember that money is not all corrupting. Sometimes it's just the thing in which you need to do in order to provide for your family to provide a roof over your head. That it could be that that extra night stay at a hotel could mean a tremendous amount to her financial well-being and the ability to survive. Uh, we don't know, but we can't make it too skeptical, be too skeptical. It also may be a lever to say, I've been waiting for you. I know the right decision. So why should I be burdened more and more why should I have my practical considerations as I wait around for you to do the thing that is clear to me that we ought to be doing? I had mentioned to you, too, I also wonder if sometimes people, just in dealing with grief and these kinds of decisions that we have to make, obviously in reading the article, it comes up pretty early in the article, and so a person could latch on to it, it you know, in terms of a case study to think about. But, of course, in context, however she was this was going on would might bear itself out somewhat differently than the way you write about it. And I also recall somebody I'm close to who had suffered several early deaths and witnessed her mother lose a child. And she said her mo mother's response at, at death was, it was at home and occurred at home, was 
very shortly after she wanted to mop the floor. And, yeah. you know, and so maybe all of these factors play together under stressful circumstances along with these real considerations of, you know, what people have to do. Um, you know, the, the Cleveland Clinic made a huge commitment several years ago to run all of their clinicians through a relationship-based communications course, uh, half-day course, some full day, um, to develop a kind of system for relationship communication. And so what does that have to do with the uh, with hotel? Um, these are ways in which we recognize that there are sometimes psychological things that people latch onto that they need addressed first before they can hear and think about the other things. So for instance, in the relationship-based uh, communication process, you'll start the family meeting with a list of what are the most important things for you to have answered in this meeting, right? And there are some things, hotel room, that you need to address first to say, okay, great, we will address, have the social worker work with you after this, you no longer need to worry about that, or here's how we'll, we'll if you can get that off the table and get or them... parking. Or parking, great, we will have a parking voucher for you. You get some of those small things off the table, and then psychologically it then opens them up to not be focusing so much on these little details that are easy to focus on. It's easy to focus on mopping the floor. Mm -hmm. It's easy to focus on that so that you don't have to listen to or think about the things that are devastating. In ethics consultation, we're often meeting people at their most devastated moment. The uh, Again, cases that haunt us, the, the woman who is eight months pregnant and her mother is dying in the intensive care unit and she turns to us and says but my mother would have wanted to see the new baby is there any way you can uh, keep her alive for another month right that's devastating because i know the answer that the intensive the intensive care doctor has to say is i'm sorry we're talking in a matter of hours and days not weeks and months this is very important that she would have seen, wanted to see. What can we do to make sure you have some time with her? And doing that kind of conversation to address, this is a hope that we can't get to, but here are hopes we can get to. Um, that allows for the other communication about, now we need to know about what the, her wishes would be about being on a ventilator for the last hours and days of her life. Now, I'd like to come back to the, the cases that haunt us case that we were uh, just discussing. Um, you noted very nicely that Dr. Dallas handles thousands of cases a year. He calls us on one or two cases a year. Right? So part of what we rely on is our colleagues uh, noticing that there's something different about this case. Now, sometimes it hits them over the head. There's a family yelling and screaming that, or a, a nurse at bedside that uh, insists, or right? Um, but when there is something that is different than the usual, then it's time to, to pay attention to it. It's to sometimes slow down a little bit, but not a lot, because we don't want to, uh, to throw a wrench in the gears of, of decision-making. Yeah, we should also note that the title of the article is You're the Ethicist, I'm Just the Surgeon. And so how in that case do you feel that or do you think that you helped Dr. Dallas? Or what, what part, what was your role for him in that? Um, yeah. Obviously, largely the focus is on the family and the patient. But what did so you do for him there? Actually, our best work is in service of the patient but it's in helping our caregivers understand and frame the kinds of tragedies that they uh, have to be involved in because of the nature of healthcare. Um, my role was to help him recognize where it is and how it is that he had properly discharged his duties. He had advocated and done his best and his part to um, provide the health care that this patient needed to survive. And then, after being clear about what he thought ought to be done, he listened carefully and was willing to follow patient values. 
as bad as that will feel because this patient was going to die, he had done his, his, his obligation. So it wasn't about deferring. Well, the ethicist decided this. We put this squarely that this was the team's decision. Ethicists influenced us. And this was what was haunting about me is knowing that I was seeing this patient, I was seeing this family, this moment, and in a matter of hours, this patient would no longer be alive. And if we kept them on the ventilator, they would have been. And I had some role in that. Um, the opportunities here also are for Dr. Dallas to gain new skills in thinking and develop new ways of uh, approaching these problems. So we always use these ethics consults, these critical instances, to educate at the moment, to reflect on whether there were better processes, whether maybe the informed consent process for the surgery should have had a more explicit discussion of, should I need a ventilator for a long term, would I be willing to? Did he need a better advanced directive? Right. So these critical incidences, and that's really what we do in these complex environments, lead us often to say, are there process changes that we can reduce the chance that this dilemma will arise? And so in some ways, we want to cut down a lot of the consults we do. But even if we cut down on the number of consults we do because we've educated people, changed processes, these are such complex, dynamic systems, we will always have tough, challenging problems to help our care providers. It'll just be in different areas. So there's it continues to be an unmet need to support people in these morally distressing situations. Uh, medicine isn't going to become less complex, and people are going to continue to face these struggles. And so we educate, we create policy, and then when you really need us at this critical moment, whether it's 3 a.m. in the morning or in the afternoon after uh, weeks of, uh, of being in a, a hospitalization, uh, this is when we, we, we often come in. So based on also your experience in this specific case, and you said this comes up a lot, this idea about long-term, short-term, things like that, is that a place where advanced directives could do better or these conversations early on? Do you, what is your experience with? Yeah. Or so, is this just something that it's inevitably going to occur, as you said, because... You had mentioned also in conversation that in this case there was physical, seemed to be physical discomfort. And yeah. really the family did not want to prolong because, of course, somebody might say, well, why not give it a few more days, right? But in the actual case, there was physical discomfort and our appeasing our own minds could be somebody else's continued discomfort. So I guess the question is, no matter how much we try to refine advanced directives and conversations, is, is this just going to be something that could come up because in an actual situation there's so many variables at play so, so it's always going to come up but we can reduce the number and uh, at our institution we've worked very hard to increase the number of power of attorney for health care both to know who you really want to represent your views if you're unable to not just end of life but if you're in the middle of a surgery but it also prompts conversations so if you ask me to fill out a power of attorney for health care and I uh, select my wife, then I'm very likely going to go and mention my wife. By the way, I filled this out, and here are some things about my health care you might need. So that's been uh, tremendously successful uh, in our preoperative. Uh, we have an end-of-life center, uh, end-of-life care center, and they have implemented a program where people going through preoperative evaluations um, get the opportunity to, to fill out a, a power of attorney for health care particularly. Uh, some states have um, MOLST or POLST, which are uh, a little bit different documents than the, um, the living will that we have in Ohio. Uh, they've tried to pass these, and they're a little more specific about the kinds of health care you do and don't want. Um, our current uh, living will as the standard form, it really doesn't uh, provide as much guidance in specific cases, but it's hard to anticipate what your health care decisions are going to be, need to be in the future. Uh, perhaps the um, the biggest opportunity to continue to help is to keep uh, people informed about their healthcare decisions, and uh, and because a lot of people are able to participate in some way in their decisions, 
Um, the classic ones are always the patient who is unconscious. Um, I know I shared with you that, uh, that uh, again, Dr. DeMarco and I wrote up a, uh, an article about a physician and nurse who had a dilemma as an outpatient setting. And I know the, in Northeast Ohio, the opioid epidemic uh, has hit, uh, hit us hard. Um, and this case actually that I, was based on all of the facts were changed um, was, uh, was before the opioid epidemic hit. So around 2009, a nurse checked the voicemail for her doctor's office and found that an anonymous person had left a voicemail saying, your patient, and name the patient, is trading his drugs, his painkillers, for street drugs. And hangs up. Right? And so now, the nurse can't unhear it. The physician and nurse uh, want to be responsible. So this gave us an opportunity to really reflect on uh, the different kind of actions one might take in knowing how to balance truthfulness with this patient. It turned out there were some other details about uh, prescription habits and other things and opioid contracts. And uh, do you lie to the patient about why you want them to come in? Do you ignore the, vo the voicemail? How do you uh, be fair to this patient, to be fair to society, to uphold your obligations as a healthcare provider, to be responsible, to preserve your license uh, to, in, in this prescribing, uh, and really help this patient most? And also, I think in the case, wasn't this a situation where there was a relationship with the patient? So there was familiarity was yep. with him. So this was a long-term patient, uh, one who had lots of... Um, family responsibilities and other responsibilities where they were getting the prescription every once in a while renewed without needing to come in. There'd been no indication of any abuse or addictive uh, traits or some of the things that might raise a red flag. So it, uh, nothing before this had suggested, oh, this is a patient that uh, um, might need more help. So uh, there's a relationship, but the clinicians were very worried about um, the patient's health, as well as continuing trust with the patient, but also that if this person was right and you uh, and they told and ignored her, it. Or, oh, yeah, if you ignored it, then uh, then the patient may really have a problem in, in being unsafe. So, how did you? What did? You, what conclusion did you and Dr. Demarco come to in that case? This is a nice illustration, I think, where very reasonable people can come to different conclusions and have different reasons for that conclusion. Uh, yeah. So um, so my position uh, for the, the commentary's sake was that uh, we ought to maximize transparency and truthfulness with the patient. Um, she needed a, he needed a, the patient needed a uh, prescription sooner rather than later that it would be certainly um, reasonable to offer a limited prescription but insist that the patient come in and to either disclose that the uh, about the call at the time of, over the phone or say there's things that we need to talk about and then disclose it at uh, at the, the meeting and that um, you could do a drug screen but if you didn't usually do random drug screens that it should be a uh, um, transparent that you should tell her that tell him that uh, that um, that you're going to do a drug screen. So you were advocating for complete disclosure about the call and in service of a trusting relationship between the physician or the primary health care team and the patient, and also in terms of his right to this knowledge, you would yes. say? Yes, so, so I, f I felt like that this was his knowledge and to put it in the charter otherwise and uh, it would be to to fail this this patient in in what they know, what the doctor knows, is really in my mind what you want to know too about you. So, but it it had its costs, right? So it wasn't ignoring the responsibility. This could, in fact, cause the patient to trust you less. What you're listening to a phone call over uh, over me, or this might put at risk whoever was on that phone. Maybe that anonymous caller uh, was anonymous because they feared 
for some repercussions. Maybe they were honestly trying to help, right? So um, uh, this is a uh, uh, not without its consequences. And yet you think that the patient's rights here trump the potential consequences. The physician's obligation to be honest and the, uh, the, to build that relationship I took as more important than, uh, than the other. There also, the process I outlined would be time-consuming for the, for the physician, and increasingly our practitioners are crunched for face time with their patients. They're expected to see more and more patients and, uh, and have less time. In that case, is it dishonest not to say anything? And also, I, I have that question, and the other question is, if you receive an anonymous phone call like that, and it's just this very brief kind of thing, does it have to go in the, and it is about a specific patient, does it have to thereby go into their chart because it was put out there? So, so Because I can understand if it, has to, if it is in the chart and people have access to their own charts, that, would be, that could be another consequence yeah. if you don't yeah. say anything that later he sees the chart and that undermines that relationship. But I wonder if, yeah, it has uh, to be in there. I mean, that's the other argument, saying this uh, is not real information. It has no accountability. It has no known truthfulness. It is simply a mere rumor. And we don't put mere rumors in the chart. We ought not to put put mere rumor in the chart, right? Maybe that sticks it in the back of your mind that says, maybe uh, I'll be attentive if the red flags, or maybe it makes you pay more attention to your prescribing habits. But the other argument is, this is bad information. This is poisoning the well. It's not my business. I'm not law enforcement. I'm not... This is just uh, sort of a garbage set of communications that deserves nothing more than to be deleted and... Uh, um, and in fact, should we even be having voicemails, right? That, and that, that's the argument to say we shouldn't be having voicemails over the weekend or overnight. We should be sending it to a live person, and if a person's unwilling to to uh, uh, to name themselves, or if the situation doesn't put an immediate person at risk, then uh, then we should disregard it and because this is simply interfering with a doctor-patient relationship. And that was basically the position that Dr. DeMarco took, right, for the sake of the commentary. And I think I also recall one of the lines in his commentary being that I don't have a right to what people are, I don't necessarily have a right to what people are saying about me. Whereas in your commentary, you were essentially asserting that he does have that right. Would you still... Yeah, you know, I think we underestimate as humans how much influence things have on us. You know, you look at the conflict of interest in medicine uh, uh, survey, and there was one survey that had something like um, 80% of uh, or 90% of, of physicians said that small gifts wouldn't influence their prescribing practices. So most people say it, wouldn't, it won't change the way I prescribe. But when asked... Does it change your colleague's prescription? About the same number said it, it would influence their colleagues, right? So it's always the other person's going to get influenced, not me by a little thing. So we're deceiving ourselves if we think we heard that and it's not going to influence us. Um, but then the question is, um, which kinds of influences should we be transparent about and which are harmful to our, are more harmful to our relationships? And... Uh, Dr. DeMarco and I took uh, different positions on, on where to balance that risk. Right. And that, that's where the value choice came in. Yeah, and I think in the case, too, he did it, it did say that the patient had been a little bit behind on his appointment. So he, I believe Dr. DeMarco said this might be a, just a good cue to kind of reel things in and not give him any further prescriptions until he comes in for his routine evaluation. However, just to forget about that or something like that. It was largely based on a consequentialist reasons uh, about how disastrous it could go or something like that. Um, but it's a, I've used this in my classes, and it's a nice illustration of, again, how there is two very reasonable positions here. Um, and, and, of course, we often get that when we take a more deontological approach versus a consequentialist approach. 
uh, and trying to balance those consequences. Do you have any later thoughts now about that case or? You know, uh, in retrospect, being this was from 2009, I I don't. I, I suspect this case would not come up as frequently, given that uh, there are already more uh, narcotic opioid contracts. That, that there are are different processes for random drug screening. Um, in some ways, this patient uh, uh, would have been screened differently, anyways. So. So I, policies have changed. Policy have changed to be be unlikely, and and this kind of case outpatient again which was great to have an outpatient case uh, don't come up very frequently so I think this was a a little bit of a uh, confluence of circumstances that, that then presented this unusual uh, situation but but this does happen in other fields uh, particularly in psychiatry we hear uh, how much do you trust someone that simply leaves a voicemail particularly if they believe that the patient or say that the patient could be at harm or that they may put someone else at harm, right? Uh, how much do you um, listen to a patient who wants to call you up and say, even if they identify themselves, I want to tell you about Paul Ford and you're his psychiatrist and uh, you should know this, right? It uh, Oftentimes patients are asked to for psychiatrists to talk to their family members to get collateral, they call it collateral information, information to sort of see how realistic uh, your view of yourself is because none of us are have perfectly realistic views of ourselves. Uh, but what do you do with the, uh, the people who just leave messages that, uh, you know, when do you just ignore them and when does it reach a standard that says the stakes are too high? Is there a uniform policy on that or is it judgment of the professional so so it's largely judgment you know there's the um the classical uh law case that people from california the tarasoff case people use oftentimes mm -hmm. different states have different uh, uh legal requirements but broadly most places that if there's an identifiable harm then to a specific individual or group of individuals then one would uh would then need to disclose and uh and act on it um but then it becomes variable as to what your obligation, what is obligated, what's prohibitive, and what is sort of supererogatory, simply above your own duty. And a lot of that is uh, uh, by experience and judgment. Yeah, this case is interesting in the fact that it also kind of predated this opioid crisis uh, and actually provides interesting questions in itself. Um, and then again, as we said, the fact that you have two very reasonable positions here and well-defended arguments that uh, take such a different stance on it. Well, I want to thank you again for coming in today. I think our students and listeners are going to really benefit from the conversation. Is there anything that we've left out about ethics consultation that you would like to tell the students or the listeners? I appreciate the opportunity to discuss all of these uh, these things that we've just hit the tip of the iceberg. After doing 1,500 uh, plus consults, I realized that there is an incredible diversity of ways in which people think about things. I think that there's an incredible diversity of what people call families. Oftentimes people think of one kind of family or then you get promulgated there's two kinds of families. There's an infinite number of different ways people think of families and decision makers. And so you have to be open to hearing from as many people, because we all live in networks, uh, to help patients make the best choices for who they are. And I would think that in the staff, that diversity of backgrounds and histories that you all bring to the table is helpful in your discussions and, and trying to come to a much more empathetic view of the different things that people are going through must be very helpful as well. You know, we didn't talk much about the formats of ethics consults across the country. Some people look at our program and say, well, you must be a lone wolf model because you just have one primary person on service or two people. Uh, we're embedded in a team of ethicists, and within 
uh, each case, we're embedded in a team of social workers and internal medicine doctors and surgeons. And so there's nothing lone wolf about this. It is a set of skills that brings together those voices and helps to simulate that, that diversity. Um, rather than an ethicist standing on high, it's an ethicist shoulder to shoulder with the patient, the nurse, the social worker, the resident physician, uh, trying to solve some of the most intractable problems and bring our skills to bear. Well, thank you again. And uh, what would be great is if sometime we could have you back to, to scratch below the surface of what we've covered today. Happy to. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Conversations in Bioethics, a podcast brought to you by the Cleveland State Department of Philosophy and Comparative Religion. Produced by faculty member Tony Nicoletti in conjunction with the Center for Instructional Technology and Distance Learning. For more information about the Department of Philosophy and Comparative Religion course offerings, please visit our website at csuohio.edu or call 216-687-3900.